Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today on this two part on this second part of our two part alien franchise discussion, Steve and I are going to talk about the last three films in the main series, and those are of course Alien Resurrection, Prometheus, and Alien Covenant. And we're also going to be talking about Alien versus Predator from two thousand four. Uh, you'll note that we're not going to discuss AVP Requiem uh, from two thousand seven, despite meeting Utani, the other half of Wayland Utani Corporation, and seeing the Predalien. We saw burst out through the chest of the Predator in the first film. And that is because it drifts away from the concept created in the Alien versus Predator comics by Dark Horse. And the first film stays more faithful to the spirit of the comics for the most part. However, neither of those films is a direct adaptation of the comic. Um, however, uh, before we get started, if we can jump into Alien Resurrection, was there anything you wanted to add or say, Steve? Sure, a few things. Um, by this point, the Alien franchise starts to lose its way, and it never again reaches the same heights that it previously did under Scott and Cameron. But that's not to say it's irredeemable. I, I feel like Resurrection is a flawed film, but it's at least a fun film to watch. Uh, there are some good performances from what ends up being a pretty decent cast. But you also get to see some of the evolution of Joss Whedon as a writer with this movie as well. Uh, I'll get into what I mean when we start talking about what he brought to the film. Sounds good. So, So let's get into it. Alien Resurrection came out in 1997 and was directed by Jean-Pierre Junet, written by Joss Whedon and stars Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley's clone and Winona Ryder as the synthetic named Annalie Call with the Betty's crew. Ron Perlman is Ron Johnner, uh, a mercenary and member of the Betty's crew. Gary Duordan as Gary Christie, the first mate and second in command of the Betty. And Michael Wincott as Frank Elgin, captain of the mercenary ship Betty. Now, the cool kids will recognize Michael Wincott from his role in Top Dollar in 1994 as The Crow. Uh, but Dan Hedaya uh, also stars as General Martin Perez, the commanding officer of the Auriga, uh, the science vessel that they are on. Johnny Freeman uh, as plays Dr. Mason Wren, uh, one of the scientists of the Auriga, and the guy who gets a chestburster through his skull. And the last but not least is Brad Dorff as Dr. Jonathan Gettyman, another scientist experimenting on the Xenomorph and gene splicing um well i do remember uh wincott in the crow i mainly remember him as the warden of the chateau Deef in the early 2000s adaptation of the count of monte cristo god isn't even in france this time of year is, is <laughs> one of my favorite lines by him and then there's dan hadaya who i always think of as tom hanks's miserable boss at the petroleum jelly company in jovers the volcano i mean he has a similar persona as the commander of the auriga I also can't overlook Brad Dourif, who excels at playing creepy villains. That said, I think you're telegraphing a bit too much when you cast Dourif as a mystery villain. <laughs> that much is true. In fact, I'm trying to remember a film where Dourif wasn't a bad guy, and I can't think of one. <laughs> so I, I think either. you're right. Yeah, so I think you're right about tipping their hand by casting him. Um, I also have to add that when I see Dan Hedaya, uh, uh, I automatically go right to Joe versus the volcano as well. Uh, but I'd like to I'd like to talk about the film uh, a bit if we could. At the very beginning of the film, we see Ripley's clone and we hear Ripley's voice quoting Newt from Alien saying, my mommy always told me that there were no monsters, no real ones, but there are. They go on to explain that as an unexpected benefit of the genetic crossing of xenomorphs and Ripley's DNA, memories from both the xenomorphs and from Ripley uh, from 200 years ago have been passed down. Uh, 
And as that is not a human trait, uh, we have to assume that xenomorphs pass down their knowledge and experience on a genetic level uh, through the facehuggers and, and, on a, and on a greater level than we do. You know, like uh, humans get certain instincts, you know, like fear of falling and that kind of stuff. We have just as a baby. But these are this is clearly on another level. Uh, something else that is interesting is Ripley's telepathy is not just with other xenomorphs, uh, which she clearly has, including noting, knowing uh, that the scientists took the queen out of her but also with humans as she is able to tell the synthetic Annalie that the humans were looking for there's definitely that I mean she's not human in, in many noticeable respects I can't help but conclude that this Ripley is a completely different character even if she's played by Sigourney Weaver and based on Ripley's DNA I mean that's not a criticism mind you I mean they had to bring her back somehow and this was probably the best way to do it unless you want to hand wave out Alien 3 in the Highlander 2 style just ignore it and I think Sigourney plays this new Ripley pretty well. And the things you mentioned make her pretty distinct and interesting. Apparently, the company did not want to have wasted their time on Fury 161 after Ripley killed herself as they dug up blood samples taken by Dr. Clemens before she had died that were on ice here, ice there. And they must have been some damn good samples, too. These things were 200 years old. Probably. Uh, they might have had some really good uh, preservations techniques by then. I wouldn't even be surprised if they had been on ice for centuries until they were found. Uh, that's entirely possible. But, I mean, just imagine all that can be done medically with that kind of preservation available. Uh, transplants in particular come to mind. Uh, but that that's a whole other thing, I guess. Um, it, it was interesting to see the Xenomorphs strategizing on another level in Alien Resurrection. I have a theory that the Xenomorphs got smarter as, as a result of Ripley's intelligence and the genetic bonding process. Like those two in the cell with the third Xenomorph, without any verbal or visual communication, just automatically have a plan to turn on the third Xenomorph so that his blood would melt the floor of the cell and they would allow them to escape. I think this is an alien demonstration of the telepathy that Ripley showed us earlier. This behavior was also demonstrated in Ripley when Annalie questioned Ripley about being able to kill her own kind and Ripley simply says that they were in her way. I think one of the scarier parts of the film for me was when they were going through that room underwater and the xenomorphs were chasing them. I mean, they were so quick and graceful in the water. You would think they were aquatic creatures, uh, but then to find that they, the xenomorphs had actually lured them into a trap with a room full of eggs, the realization that they were strategizing on that level made it extra scary. It totally does. Uh, by using the newfound human element in the hybrid xenomorphs against the human survivors, this movie blurs the line between human and xenomorph in a number of ways. Uh, because Ripley is a part of these creatures, it stands to reason that they, she probably gave them her intelligence and survival instincts as well. That definitely makes sense to me. On that note, Dr. Jonathan Gettyman says that with Ripley's gift, a human reproductive uh, system, the queen was perfect. I can't help but take that all the way back to David trying to perfect the, or the, the organism of the xenomorphs. And that makes me wonder, are the experiments we saw in Aliens and in Alien Resurrections just continuation of David's work from so long ago? Entirely possible. I mean, it depends on how much of his old research survived and how much of Wayland yutanis files uh, they were able to access. I'm unsure if they were even aware of David, but probably the company's files included things he had done. Everything that happens on a Wayland yutani ship automatically reports back. So I think they definitely could have had David's research, or, or even if they might not have attached it to him specifically. Uh, but speaking of the research and experimentation, I have to talk about the end. That humanoid xenomorph getting pushed out into space through that hole the size of a golf ball just tugs at my heartstrings every time. They do a good job of showing the betrayal he feels on his face and in his eyes, and even knowing she betrayed him and while he is dying he reaches out to his to ripley like mom what are you doing help me it, it is a heartbreaking moment and the design sells it uh last time we talked about how inhuman the xenomorph design is because we can't see his eyes here we get an alien with very human-like eyes and i think that that gives it personality and relatability ripley does what is necessary and we understand why she does this i mean the creature cannot be allowed to survive but it is a sad moment for sure 
Oh, the eyes are definitely a huge part of why that scene is so emotional. And honestly, it's impressive that they could get so much out of solid black eyes. Um, but if we could move on to making uh, to the making of and general trivia for Alien Resurrection. Joss Whedon was brought on by Fox to rewrite a treatment because they desperately wanted to revive the franchise after Ripley's death in Alien 3. Fox was familiar with his work as a staff writer on Roseanne and Parenthood from 89 to 90 and as a script doctor on the Getaway, Speed, Waterworld, and Twister, as well as having written 1992's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that was all the credentials they needed. Uh, Whedon's original treatment for Alien 4 did not have Sigourney Weaver in it, though. And while Fox liked the treatment he wrote, they told him uh, he would have to add Weaver to the script. Walter Hill and David Geiler from Brandywine Productions actively tried to get Alien 4 shut down because they hated Fox's ideas and Whedon's script so much. For that reason, the script was developed in entirely without Geiler and Hill, which was a first for the franchise. Now, Whedon's job as the writer came with a lot of pressure, but uh, not much actually to go on. Uh, he was also asked to make an alien movie, uh, and that carries with it certain certain things, like it has to be scary and it has to be exciting like an alien movie, and he has to find a way to bring Ripley back. back. As I mentioned in the last episode, there's still the idea floating around from Alien 3 that there would be specific a specific way station where all kinds of covert experiments with the xenomorphs were going on, and Whedon did snatch up that idea. But to be fair, there was a similar secret uh, station experimenting on xenomorphs and aliens too on LV-426. Uh, but he also combined elements of the previous films, like there being a secret synthetic on board, there being a lone crew trying to survive, a single ship, multi-xenomorphs, and the mercenaries are even criminals like the prisoners, prisoners in Fury 161 and Alien 3. Last but not least, you get the United Systems military, which are like the colonial marines and aliens. However, even with all of those familiar elements, Whedon was able to do something new, in my opinion. Yeah, he's good at that kind of thing. Um, but I'm going to drop something on you when it comes to Whedon. I'm convinced that Alien Resurrection was an early version of Firefly. Uh, while there are some character designs here and there, um, or, or changes here and there, there are some very noticeable parallels. Uh, the Betty has uh, design elements in common with the Serenity, if you look close enough. Uh, like uh, Mal Reynolds, the Betty's captain is a mercenary, but he's morally conflicted and ends up doing the right thing in the end. Ron Perlman's character pretty much is a one-to-one -one version of Jane. He's the thug who's out for whatever benefits him. Joss Whedon made some changes when he designed the Serenity crew, but I don't think there's much question that the Betty was the template that, uh, he, that they were based on. That is interesting, and it would not be the first time that writers have done previous versions of characters in their early work. And honestly, if you write about that, and, and it sounds like you might be, uh, that makes me like Firefly a little bit more. Um, but speaking of Whedon, Whedon said something that I've actually heard you say in so many words, Steve, and that is that the difference between a good horror movie and a bad one is whether or not you care about the characters. Oh, that is a major factor for me, yes. Um, I think this movie does make you care about these characters uh, in the time we get with them, especially Ripley and Call, but also some of the uh, not-quite-Firefly characters, too. Um, this is one of the reasons I'll take this film over some other horror films, uh, even if it's not up there with the first two Alien films. Very cool. Um, I actually liked uh, like Alien Resurrection myself, uh, but you're right when you say the first two films are the pinnacle for the franchise. Uh, but if we could go go to the behind the scenes stuff here for a minute. Sigourney Weaver, who was a producer on Alien 3 and again on Alien Resurrection, uh, was actually surprised to hear that the studio was working on a new Alien script with her in it because part of the reason she died in part three was to free the series of Ripley before she becomes a trope, which she was definitely on the verge of becoming. Uh, but when she read Whedon's script, she loved it. Whedon had written Ripley's clone as a dark, strange, and edgy. Uh, and as far as uh, Weaver was concerned, the darker and stranger and edgier uh, they could make her, the better. And consequently, Weaver really fleshed out the character, even beyond what Whedon had originally envisioned. Oh, they definitely got that bit down well. I mean, this is a movie about the new Ripley finding the humanity within herself. Uh, she's an artificially created being, and she's half xenomorph, and she doesn't really quite know what she even is. Um, but she eventually connects with Call, and then later with the crew of the Betty, and by the end, she sides with humanity over the xenomorphs, which reflects her own inner conflict about who and what she is. I mean, that's not a bad character arc at all. Uh, it is a good character arc. Um, <laughs> I, I do have to comment, though. Um, 
I, I can't I can't actually picture any whenever anyone asks me if I ever want a souvenir, uh, I automatically go to this movie. <laughs> Honestly, though, even though if, uh, even though Sigourney Weaver, Weaver didn't like the script uh, where they took the xenomorphs back to Earth, I would have liked to see a continuation of her character on Earth. Uh, but let's talk about the directors for a minute. Jean Pierre Junet came on to the alien direct alien resurrection in the tradition of bringing on a relatively un known director to do the film granted those former unknowns turned out to be ridley scott james cameron and david fincher so i imagine there was some pressure for him there mm -hmm. uh, oddly enough though uh Jeanne did not like the idea of doing sequels but he was honored to be asked to direct a film so he took the job Jeanne ended up working closely with whedon on finalizing the script and especially the climax of the film Jeanne liked to try and contribute at least one thing big or small to every scene but ultimately he felt that he was there to bring about the studio's vision for the film. Yeah, uh, Whedon would later uh, claim that there were differences between him and Junet about why the, the way the movie turned out. But I think he's someone who likes to be in control of everything, which is usually why he has to direct or be the showrunner. I think Junet brought a unique visual style to the film, even if he directed it in a way that Whedon wouldn't have. But in the end, I think we got a fun, watchable film, even if it wasn't a huge success. I have to agree with that. There are things that I or or even Whedon uh, would have done differently or, or didn't like, but the film is enjoyable and has good characters. Honestly, the only one I think about skipping when I'm doing an alien marathon is three. <laughs> now, totally the fair. next. Yep. Now, the next thing coming up in our conversation is Alien versus Predator. But before we get into Alien versus Predator, the movie, I think we need to talk about the comics they're based on, published by Dark Horse Comics intermittently uh, between the years of 1989 and 2020. They, they own the rights to both Predator and the Alien franchises as far as making comics go. The original idea for the crossover came, of, came from a brainstorming session between comic creators and Dark Horse executives. Chris Warner, who would go on to be AVP's editor and artist is the one who pitched the idea. The basic idea for the series is this. The Predators are hunters and individually they all wish to be the greatest hunter. A very honorable position among the Predators. The Xenomorphs, just called aliens, are the fiercest and most deadly creatures in the universe. To kill one of them made you a great warrior and a hunter and worthy of being among their individual clans. So essentially the ultimate hunter meets the greatest hunt and the ultimate warrior meets his greatest foe all in one game. While the series went on to be written and drawn by multiple people, I'm going to focus on the first three-issue black and white story from Dark Horse Presents uh, 30, number 34 through 36, as it is a loose basis for the AVP film. Alien vs. Predator was written and edited by Randy Stradley, penciled by Phil Norwood, inked by Carl Story, and lettered by Pat Brousseau. The three issues of the Dark Horse, uh, three issues of Dark Horse Presents also featured Aliens and Predator cover art by Chris Warner, who originally pitched the idea for the comic. Uh, this comic served as a prequel to the four-issue series of the same name. As an aside, uh, there was also a 12-issue maxi-series by Dark Horse called Alien vs. Predator, The Deadliest of the Species. Uh, the writer on the series was none other than Chris Claremont, uh, who we've talked about on our X-Men episodes. The artists on the book included Butch Geis, who uh, worked with uh, Claremont on New Mutants, and uh, Eduardo Barreto. The concept centered around uh, Karen Delacroix, who is the trophy wife of a major corporate figure, but we find out that there are secrets to her past that she can't remember. Uh, she ends up working alongside a female predator named Big Mama as they deal with uh, xenomorphs and a big corporate conspiracy. This was where I first found Alien vs. Predator as a concept, and I thought it was a pretty cool series, but that's pretty much the limit of my comics knowledge with the franchise. So uh, why don't we get into the series uh, you were thinking of? Oh, sure. Um, I, I actually didn't know that Claremont wrote an AVP story. Uh, that's actually pretty cool. But as you say, let's get into the first Alien vs. Predator story. While the movie takes place in the Antarctic at Razorback's whaling station on Earth, the original story takes place on the recently colonized planet of Ryushi and centers around Machiko Noguchi, uh, the Chigusa Corporation's administrator there on Ryushi over the Prosperity Wells colony. The Antarctic setting on Bouvet 
Island for the Razorback Whaling Station in the film is actually based on the unexplained Vela incident from September 22nd, 1979, where a satellite recorded a flash of light near the island. It was first speculated to have been a man-made nuclear explosion or a natural event such as a meteor strike, but this has never been resolved. But in the comics, the colonizers were far from whalers. The settlers on Ryushi uh, raised cattle-like creatures called rents to export them to other solar systems. When we first meet them, they are in the process of filling an order. What nobody on Ryushi knows is that the planet is a traditional hunting ground uh, to the predators, and they have returned to the planet to complete their coming-of-age initiation rites called being blooded in, i.e. to receive the mark of their clan. That is the general idea as to why the predators are coming to Earth in AVP. But back to the comics. On board the predator ship, the alien queen lays eggs to take down to Ryushi for the game. However, the alien queen, in a real show of strategy, sneaks an egg containing a royal facehugger, a facehugger with the seed of a queen, onto the shipment going down to Ryushi. After the shipment goes down, the Rinth are, are quickly impregnated. In the in the film, this goes down a little differently. The queen is kept frozen and brought up to the brought up out of the ice each century when the predators come to Earth for this ceremony of battle and blood. They don't say it outright, but like the story, the purpose of why the predators came down to Earth was to initiate unblooded predators. Why will become clear in a minute. Now, when the predators, led by a predator named Broken Tusk, arrive down on the planet, they are all prepared to face the aliens that have hatched from their shipment. However, when they arrive, what they find are the colonists, and after Broken Tusk is injured and incapacitated, the predators decide to hunt the humans instead. Meanwhile, the rents that have been impregnated by the facehuggers, one of them with a queen inside, have been loaded up onto the cargo transporter, and an alien colony quickly takes hold inside. It is not long before the colonists find themselves pitted against both aliens and predators, as the predator assault on the colony continues. Continues. Broken Tusk recovered because of the because a human doctor helped him. Afterwards, he sides with Machiko Noguchi, uh, and together with the crew aboard the cargo ship, they set it they set it up so that the cargo ship uh, ship's orbiter will crash into Ryushi and destroy the alien colony. In the fight, Broken Tusk is more mortally wounded, uh, but he is so impressed with Ma, with Machiko's uh, courage and warrior spirit that he bloods Machiko with the mark of his clan. It was a very high honor to make her one of them via the mark of his clan. In fact, in the comic, uh, the only way to get blooded in is for killing an alien. And you see this happen in the movie as well when the Predator bloods uh, Alexa into his clan. I think the in the Predator's eyes, she had killed the alien earlier and the, uh, with the spear in, in the pyramid, making her worthy. And she helped him escape to the surface before the bomb killed them. You wouldn't know this if you didn't read the comics, but while Predators, called Yaucha in the comics, don't hunt humans for sport, they consider them like equals as far as warriors and hunters go. Typically, when a human helps... One of the Yaucha or proves themselves worthy in battle, they are rewarded with an item or, or, or sometimes even brought into the clan. For instance, in the comics, Machiko went on to live with the Yaucha and Alexa did not do that. But Machiko was accepted as one of them by the other Yaucha because of the mark of Broken Tusk clan on her. So too was Alexa accepted by the leader of the Predators when he saw the mark of his clan on her. Because she was also helped, because she also helped the Predator, she was given a very nice gift in the form of the clan leader's own personal spear. In my opinion, that is a huge sign of respect and honor. The clan leader, I believe, saw Alexa as an equal, but maybe I'm reading too much of the comics into the movie. Well, um, that sounds a pretty cool, like a pretty cool story, and I think it's very probable that it influenced the movie uh, the way that you describe. Um, I vaguely uh, remember the Noguchi character from an Alien vs. Predator novel, but it's just been ages since I read it, and I barely remember anything from it now. Maybe I should check it out uh, one of these days. I would definitely recommend it. The character named Mark Verheiden in the AVP film, uh, who was one of the armed escorts to the exploratory team, was actually a direct reference to Mark Verheiden, the comic book writer, who created the very first six-issue Alien series for Dark Horse way back in 1989. It was a story about Newt and Corporal Hicks that was pretty uh, that was pretty decent, as I recall. Later in that same year, Verheiden uh, wrote the first four issues of the Predator series for Dark Horse. That ran until 1990. Uh, he would go on to write several other stories for Predator as well. 
Oh, that's interesting. I don't remember seeing Verheiden's name on very much until he wrote some Superman titles many years later. But I guess this is where he started building up his career. Uh, still, it is a pretty cool nod. It is. And I like nods like that, like how the names of writers and artists that had worked on Daredevil ended up in the Daredevil movie. It's it's very nice. But let's talk about the movie specifically. Alien vs. Predator came out in 2004. However, Alien vs. Predator was rumored to be in the works ever since a xenomorph skull appeared on the Predator ship's trophy room in Predator 2 from 1992. Although at the time, it was actually a nod to the comic book series from Dark Horse and was not intended to be foreshadowing. But you know fans, that didn't stop the rumors. And 12 years later, they did get their wish. Speaking of which, the story for Alien vs. Predator was written by Paul W.S. Anderson, who also directed and co-wrote the screenplay with Shane Salerno. Their writing was influenced by Aztec mythology, the comic book series, and the writings of Eric Van Donegan. And the film starred uh, Sana uh, Lathan as Al Alexa Lex Woods, uh, Raul Boba as Professor Sebastian De Rosa, Lance Henriksen as Charles Bishop Whelan, and as a quick side note, Lance Henriksen became the second actor after Bill Paxton to be killed and or assaulted by an alien, a predator, and a Terminator with AVP. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> but back to the other actors. Um, Ewan Bremer played uh, Dr. Graham Miller. Uh, Miller. Uh, Colin Salmon uh, played uh, Maxwell Stafford. And Tommy Flanagan played the aforementioned Mark Verheiden. It was pretty clear that Anderson was aiming for the forbidden archaeology angle with this movie. I do remember there being wild theories that the real location of Atlantis was the in the Antarctic. So they were probably using that idea with the frozen pyramid. Uh, I think some of the things get uh, hand waved to allow for this province to work, but I think it's an interesting approach for a movie like this. I felt like Alien vs. Predator was a solid little action film, but nothing that was overly exceptional. But you get some fun science fiction action in an Indiana Jones meets Aliens kind of way. I really enjoyed the film, and I like the crossover of the franchises. While I'm not a fan of AVP Requiem, I feel like they really hit the nail on the head with the first film. You know, writer Paul Anderson rewarded hardcore Alien and Predator fans with nods and references to the previous films in the franchise. For instance, the title logo fades in piece by piece, like the title logo uh, from uh, in Alien and from 1979. And the opening shot of the movie first appears to be a silhouette of the Alien Queen uh, from Aliens in 19, 1986, before being revealed as a Whalen Corporation satellite. And of course, the line "You are one ugly motherfucker" from Predator and uh, from Predator uh, in 1987 and Predator 2 from 1990 was also used in the film, but as a reference to a xenomorph and not a predator. At the beginning of the film, the technician has a drinking bird among the Tweety Pie dolls. These are the same birds that were seen in the dining room table in Alien and on the abandoned prison canteen in Alien 3 from 1992. The Predator ship's holographic is shown on the reflected on the visor of the Predator's mask, just like the readouts of the Nostromo were seen reflected on the helmets in Alien. Uh, when Charles Whalen is at the desk, he's doing with his pen what he did with the knife in Aliens. When one of the explorers is searching the whaling uh, compound uh, the red light from the guy's flare comes through the crack in the door to form a flat vertical beam that is picked up by the dust and snow in the room just like uh, the blue green light uh, from the salvage team comes through the door in Aliens from 1986 uh, the shot taken from inside the pyramid of the team approaching the top with their flashlights references the shot in uh, Alien where the Nostromo crew approached the derelict ship uh, the altars on the sacrificial altar are also placed in the exact location of the hibernation pods from Alien. Uh, this movie certainly did its homework. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, bringing back Lance Henriksen as Charles Bishop Whalen is probably the most obvious reference in the film, but the uh, references to the Predator ship and Predator 2 and some of the stylistic references to Ridley Scott were nice to see. Um, I didn't feel like they overdid the Easter eggs or evoked the, the other films too much. Some of the references are very subtle and easy to miss, but it's cool for those who notice them. Agreed. It makes it that much cooler for those that know.
Um, I have to mention my man James Cameron's thoughts on AVP movie, though. <laughs> James Cameron said that combining the Alien and Predator franchises would kill the validity of both franchises. He went on to say that uh, to him, that was Frankenstein meets Werewolf. It was Universal just taking their assets and starting to play them off against each other, just milking it. And actually, they directly paid homage to Frankenstein meets Werewolf uh, from 1943 by having one of the characters in the movie watching Frankenstein meets werewolf in the movie. Also, as a final note on that, Cameron actually saw and really loved the film. So <laughs> I hope he had that crow with some bullseye barbecue sauce. <laughs> he probably did. Uh, Cameron may be a great writer-director, but he could be wrong sometimes. I mean, th I think this is a trick that could be done once and not detract from either franchise. Uh, they mainly screwed it up by following it up with Requiem, which despite bringing in the awesome wolf predator, was largely a huge mistake of a film. I mean, we pretty much agree on that point, I think. But uh, I think this film did what it needed to do, and it's at least entertaining to watch. It is for sure. I, I enjoy it each time I watch it, and that's been about five or six times now. Uh, but there are a few obscure references to other things in AVP uh, as well. Um, the film references the X-Files, Piper Maru, uh, from Season 3, Episode 15 in 1996, uh, with the name of the icebreaker uh, used by Whaling Corporation's retrieval team being called the Piper Maru. Uh, the 3D map of the pyramid looks a lot like the hive from Resident Evil in 2002. I don't know if that's intentional, but it's something I noticed. I'm also reminded uh, a little bit uh, of Cube from 1997, which had the shifting maze of rooms uh, rotating around on a timer. It's not exactly the same, but pyramids shifting around uh, the different rooms and changing them just reminded me of that. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, I hadn't noticed it while watching, but I, I can see the connection. The Cube is a really odd film in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't think it was intentional, but it is interesting. Uh, but speaking of interesting films, Mike, uh, why don't we get into our next one? Sure thing, Steve. Uh, Prometheus came out in 2012 and was co-produced and directed by Ridley Scott. Prometheus was written by John Spates and, Di and Damon Lindelof and starred Numi Rapace as Dr. Elizabeth Shaw, uh, Michael Fassbender as the android David, Guy Pierce as Peter Whelan, Idris Elba as Jenik, uh, the captain of the Prometheus, Logan Marshall Green as archaeologist Charlie Holloway, and Charlize Theron as Peter Whelan's daughter Meredith Vicker. Now, just to give you a little perspective, consider that what happens in Prometheus is a full 19 years before the events of Alien from 1979. In Prometheus, the year is 2093, and in Alien, uh, it's 2021-22. Prometheus is a movie that I have a lot of respect for, at least on a conceptual level. It aims for really huge ideas and that real literary quality that not many science fiction films truly achieve. Um, Michael Fassbender as David absolutely steals this movie, but there's a strong ensemble cast that comes together really well here. Uh, I'm not I'm sure that they made the right move in making it an alien film, and there are execution problems, but uh, the themes are really powerful, and when the movie does land, it lands really well. Fair enough. I really like it as well as, as the idea of going back to the origin of the Xenomorph. And speaking of their origin, there is additional footage shot of the opening scene with the engineer at the waterfall that I think sheds an interesting light on what the engineers thought of what they were doing. In the extended scene, we see what looks like engineer monks and acolytes leading a religious procession behind a specific engineer out to the waterfall. I got the impression that the substance in the bowl was sacred somehow. I think he is willing to sacrifice himself as he is given the bowl uh, by an acolyte before disrobing and taking it. I don't think it was a coincidence that he fell into the river, thus spreading throughout the spreading it throughout the world they were on. In light of that extended scene, that was clearly a religious act on the part of the engineers. Uh, my guess is that this flew in the face of the footage, suggesting that the whole thing was an experiment gone wrong, maybe even done by the military, and that's why it was cut. I assume that is the same reason the scene where the where the engineer answers Shaw's question about where they are from and David's closest translation is paradise. Uh, one of the exact words her father said was used to talk about the afterlife. That conflicts with the whole just an experiment uh, theory, as that would make them gods. And removing the godhood of the engineer seems like a real point. Yeah, the, the idea of creation as an act of sacrifice runs all throughout this movie, and it's central to the engineer's belief system. Uh, there's also a spiritual aspect to the movie with the idea of the creator God as a father to his creations. 
Uh, we see this particularly with David and Wayland, but it also comes back with the engineer who acts more like an angry parent. Um, I think there was even a draft where they tried to claim that Jesus was an engineer, but that probably got written out because the studio didn't want that kind of controversy. In any case, there's a religious allegory as well as a parental one that keeps coming back uh, again and again. You are right about that draft. Ridley Scott actually came up with the idea that Jesus was an engineer sent to stop us from killing each other and fighting wars. But not only would that stir up some unwanted controversy about the film, as you mentioned, it also seems to go against the fact that the engineers were on their way to Earth to destroy mankind. Unless, of course, uh, the, the two things somehow reflect the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in reverse order. <laughs> like, I offer you grace and then I'll kill you. Uh, mm -hmm. But either way, uh, there was definitely a father and his creation thing going on there throughout the film, as you mentioned. It definitely seems that way. And, and that rings especially true when it comes to Peter Whalen and his children. Uh, we see that in the deleted scene with uh, Whalen's Tud talk that he's a man of immense ego and ambition and who is unrestrained by ethical constraints when it comes to achieving his goals. It's in this respect that I think David is truly his son. We are the gods now. Uh, Wayland proclaims, uh, not realizing how empty that statement truly is. He wants to steal the fire of creation from the engineers, but as is often the case with Greek tragedy, he pays the price for his hubris. Uh, Wayland is a fascinating character, though, as shown through his relationships with his children, including Meredith, his biological daughter, and David, who is the, the child that he always wanted in some respects, yet never is treats as a true equal because he's an android. Um, did you have any points you wanted to get into with that, Mike? Oh, I definitely do, Steve. But first, I have to comment on what you said there. That is a nice pickup about David and Wayland's relationship. Wayland and David definitely have that unbridled ambition in common. And it is no coincidence that Das Rangold, Entry of the Gods into Valhalla, was David's choice for the song to play, and that it was the song playing at the close of Prometheus. I think David believed he had succeeded where Wayland had failed, that he was a proper creator and therefore a proper god entering the halls of Valhalla. But to your question, Meredith Vickers and David are both given a jab during Peter Whalen's holographic speech. When introducing David, he says that David is the closest thing to a son that he will ever have. And you can see that that was a stab to Meredith by them immediately flashing to her and showing her discomfort with the, with the remark. You automatically get the impression that there is some backstory there about Whalen having preferred Meredith would have been a boy. Uh, you notice that she is embittered towards David throughout the film and I can't help but think that's a clue as to why right there. At the same time, David knows that was complimentary and you see him smile. But then David is told by his pro programming to act in an opposite way. When Waylon says that, uh, unfortunately, David is not human. He will never grow old and he will never die. And yet he is unable to appreciate this, these gifts because that would require the one thing that David will never have, a soul. Consider that David appeared to be doing all that he could to learn about humanity and be more like them uh, from watching the movies and practicing how they talk and even playing sports and even observing the dreams of those in stasis like he did with both Shaw and Wayland. He was basically just told by Peter Wayland that all of his efforts meant nothing. He will never be human or never and never have a soul. This seems to be derogatory towards David and you can see him trying to process it with what he knows about a human emotion. I'm also picking up on there being a bit of a one-sided sibling rivalry there between Meredith and David, fueled by Peter Whalen intentionally. I get the impression that he uses his passive-aggressive remarks and ploys to force her to do better or something. I mean, Meredith was ultimately in charge of the ship, but her father undermines her authority by telling everyone that Dr. Sean Holloway are in charge as far as everyone is concerned and doesn't even mention Meredith at all. You can tell she didn't like that too, and that's why she had to set things straight immediately afterwards then when she finds out that david is talking to her father her hatred for david really comes out in full force oh that's a nice pickup on the das Gold point I, I like that take quite a bit but as you say peter whalen really wasn't a good father at all to either of his children i mean either meredith or david he just couldn't accept either of his children for who they were and he kept demanding more of them uh, i think it's meant to represent the dissatisfaction that creators often have with their creations or that parents sometimes have with their children uh, when they take their own paths. But yes, there's definitely an element of sibling rivalry with Meredith and David. Um, Waylon doesn't even want to acknowledge Meredith, um, no matter how hard she tries for him. That undoubtedly contributes to her resentment both towards uh, her father and David. David, on the other hand, is treated as an inferior because he's artificial, while also being a superior being, 
which no doubt contributes to his own resentment towards the Waylands. I, I think this dynamic is also a good part of the reason why David is so driven to create his own form of life. I think you might be right about that. David is most assuredly driven to create. And as we discussed, David has his father's ambition, if nothing else. David is meant to be very human-like, but he does not want to be too much like a human. When Holiday, Holloway uh, asks him why he bothers to wear a helmet if he doesn't breathe, and he says that he was designed like this because you people prefer to work with your own kind, implying that it was an illusion put on for the human's benefit. But th but when the guy retorts with, uh, they make you pretty close, uh, close, huh? I mean, <clears throat> meaning that the, the close to humans as possible. David replies, not too close, I hope. Then when that same guy reminds David later that he had forgotten David wasn't a real boy, an obvious Pinocchio reference, and you'll notice he goes from smiling to straight-faced at that exact moment. I assume he figured that there was no point in pretext any longer with Holloway. Then when Holloway says that they created synthetic synthetics like David simply because they could, and David replies, can you imagine how disappointing it would be to hear that from your creators? Holloway just laughs it off and says it's a good thing you can't be disappointed then. And Holloway is right. He can't feel disappointment per se, but I would say that David has lived among his creators his whole life and has found the experience underwhelming. And that's about as close to disappointment as David can get. But like he needed confirmation that it was indeed human to do all that was necessary to achieve his goals. In this particular case, what he was planning to do with the black liquid, he asks, how far, he asked Holloway, how far would you go to get what you came all this way for? Your, your answers. Uh, what would you be willing to do? And when Holloway said anything and everything, he unknowingly gave David the assurance that the atrocities he would commit were entirely human in their motivation and therefore part of his programming to be as human-like as possible. It was something akin to being willing to kill because someone with authority gave you permission to do so in the line of duty. Uh, that was David's get-out-of-jail-free card, as up to that point he had question whether or not he was going too far by following Wayland's orders. The humans all seem to think that meeting their makers will be this glorious achievement and that they'll be welcomed with open arms for just for showing up. Uh, Wayland, most of all, who uh, hopes to use the engineer science to live past his allotted lifespan. Only David, who has experienced rejection from his human creator, sees things differently. And as it turns out, he happens to be right about this. But yes, we also see that David is becoming more and more inhuman as he becomes obsessed with creation and his own place in the process. Uh, he doesn't understand or respect moral limitations on science because he doesn't have a soul. Um, at his core, he's a machine, and for all that, he simulates human life. I mean, he doesn't have the same spark as creators do. Uh, because of that, he puts no thought whatsoever into the ethical implications of unwittingly using humans as his text subjects. In many ways, uh, David is a more frightening villain than even the aliens are. He acts with intelligence, but no moral restraint. Eventually, he seems to realize that he's superior to humans, and he starts feeling like his creators are holding him back from what he truly could be. He most certainly does, and you can see him gradually evolving beyond those restraints in his thought processes and perceptions. I also think that Wayland taught him deception, as he was on another mission from the very beginning. David clearly understood the language on that ship more than he was willing to share. He knew exactly which buttons to push and which sequence to push on the panels. But you'll notice when he was asked if he could read what was on the wall, he said, possibly. Plus, you'll note that David immediately knew to take the metal pod and report back to Wayland when he got back to the ship. Wayland, according to David, when he was questioned by Meredith, told him to try harder. David then goes to the lab and breaks open the pod he had taken from the ship and takes out a drop of the black fluid within it and says, big things have small beginnings. Now, I don't know if it's because I know what he's looking at uh, will one day be the xenomorph species or because David has some foreknowledge of some sort, uh, but he immediately knew uh, that he should test out the subject by giving it to one of the crew. Uh, there is no experimentation in the lab of any sort. He went right to giving it to Dr. Holloway, who had offended him earlier, I might add. Maybe that's just dumb luck, but David seems to know what the intent was for the black liquid. I think David definitely had a greater understanding of the engineer's language than he was letting on. I mean, he clearly spent a lot of time uh, while the crew was in hypersleep making sense of it. My thought was that maybe David deliberately mistranslated things in his conversation with the surviving engineer in the hopes of getting him to kill Wayland. Since David couldn't do it himself, he could always provoke someone else to do it as long as it's within his programming limitations. Huh. 
that is something I had not considered before, but it does kind of fit if you think about it. And actually, speaking of Waylon's death, when Shaw asked David what's going to happen to him without Waylon around to program him anymore, and David says, I guess I'd be free. Uh, but then Shaw asks him if he, if he actually wants that. Then David says that he simultaneously isn't familiar with want, and yet he does say, doesn't everyone want their parents dead? <laughs> That 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 right there was pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. At the conclusion of the film, David's creator Wayland is dead, and his fundamental programming will end without someone to serve. Writer David Lindelof explained that David's programming becomes unclear at that point, and that he could be programmed by Shaw or his own curiosity. Following Wayland's death, David is left with Shaw and is sincere in, in his interest in following her, partly out of survival and partly out of curiosity. Yeah, I really wanted to see a better ending for David and Shaw than we saw in Covenant. I mean, they were clearly setting up a sequel where they go to the engineer homeworld and try to understand what they were really doing. I think we could have gotten a really good film out of that, but plans were clearly derailed and Shaw is completely taken out of the picture. Uh, they just wasted the Shaw character in the end, sadly. I mean, I wish we could have gotten a proper Prometheus sequel, but it wasn't to be. We, we might have to agree to disagree on this one, my friend. Um I thought Alien Covenant filled in the blanks rather nicely as far as what happened with David and Shaw. And we did get to see them go back to the Alien homeworld when they went to Planet 4 in Alien Covenant. Uh, but we'll talk more uh, about that in detail uh, when we get to that film. Uh, Prometheus has several themes working through it. Uh, the main one, I think, is the story of the Greek Titan that the film and the ship were named after. Prometheus defies the gods by giving fire to man, and for this he is eternally punished, rather than and rather harshly, I might add. Uh, a big giant bird, uh, an eagle, I think, eats his liver out of his stomach every single day, and because he's a god, his tissue always grows back, only to be eaten out again the very next day. I mean, damn. <laughs> <laughs> the gods had wanted gods had wanted to limit man's creations in case they tried to usurp them. The film deals with humanity's relationship with their gods and creators, i.e. the engineers and the consequences of defying them. The crew of the Prometheus go on an expedition to find their creators, and in the process, Shaw wants to have her religious belief about heaven or paradise reaffirmed, and she believes she is entitled to answers from her gods. Peter Whelan seeks immortality from his creators because he considered himself a god as the engineers were because he is also a creator. But the engineer kills him, and as he dies, he finds there is nothing beyond. Ultimately, none of them find what they're looking for, and only death awaits them as a consequence of their hubris. There, there are a number of thematic ideas that we see in this film. I, I agree that the Prometheus name was deliberately meant to represent Greek myth. Fire is even used in a couple of uh, notable scenes. Um, I think the struggle between the Olympians and the Titans, uh, their own creators, is reflected as well. Um, as to your point about Wayland, I think he's killed because the engineer realizes that he does not have the responsibility that a true creator should have. Uh, to the engineers, uh, creator creation is an act of sacrifice, and Wayland wants life only for himself and not his creation. Uh, a king has his reign, and then he dies, as Meredith points out. Um, Wayland creates only for his own ego and his own glory, with no thought uh, put to his creations or the responsibility that a creator should have to them. Uh, the, the engineer finds this abhorrent and he kills Wayland, and realizing that humans have learned nothing from them. The idea of creation as an act of sacrifice runs throughout the film on a number of levels, but that's one of the key moments. That is rather insightful, and actually it makes more sense than killing them simply because the engineers had wanted to wipe them out. Uh, good call on that one. Uh, check out this circle of events that I did not pick up the first time. Um, the engineers created humanity in their own image using their own DNA. Humanity, i.e. Peter Whelan, created an artificial life, i.e. David, in his own image. David, that artificial life, then gives the dark liquid developed by the engineers to Holloway, who impregnates the sterile Shaw, and the resulting squid-like offspring grows to a massive size and impregnates an engineer, creating the deacon. In essence, the child of all three generations, and it brings the whole thing full circle. Yeah, that sounds about right. It ties together everything from the original alien, uh, the humans, the xenomorphs, and the space jockeys. I'm not sure uh, what the engineer's original plan was for the black goo, but I think it's safe to say that it went off course by the end of the film. <laughs> it, it's too bad that we'll never get that movie uh, that would connect those dots, but um, why don't we talk about the movie we got instead? 
I'd be glad to. Alien Covenant came out in 2017, and unfortunately, despite having a script for Alien Covenant 2 finished that same year in 2017, it might actually be the last film in the prequel series, since Alien Covenant did not do well in the box office. This has been further complicated by Disney's acquisition of Fox, and the planned sequel was delayed even further. Covenant producer and director Ridley Scott had some real big plans for the series, but as of 2021, Disney has said that a sequel is uncertain, or in English, don't hold your breath. But I'm going to quit griping about this and get to the sequel we're talking about with Alien Covenant. Uh, the screenplay was written by John Logan and Dante Harper from a short story by Michael Green and John Paglin and was a joint American and British production. Alien Covenant's story takes place in 2104, 11 years after Prometheus and 18 years before Alien. The film features returning star Michael Fassbender as both Walter from The Covenant and David from The Prometheus. And Catherine Watterson uh, as Daniels, the chief of terraforming uh, for the Covenant mission, and the wife uh, and widow of the ship's captain, Jacob Branson. Uh, Billy Crudup as uh, Christopher Orm, the Covenant's officer, then captain, and Karen's husband. Danny McBride as Tennessee, the chief pilot of the Covenant, and Maggie's husband. And uh, Damien uh, Bircher as Dan Lope, the head of the, the security unit aboard the Covenant, and Sergeant Hallett's husband. Also, as a quick side note danny mcbride who played tennessee was also also started writing halloween 18 with david gordon green in 2017 the very month alien covenant stopped filming i i just thought that was cool that is a cool point um though i'll be honest and admit i'm not a fan of covenant at all um i think the poor reception to prometheus which i felt was unfairly maligned and better than its reputation caused plans to change so rather than exploring a second prometheus film about sean david what we got was an alien film that weaves in elements from Prometheus. And even that could have worked, but in my view, it suffers from some notable story problems in the execution. Um, in fairness, I think Ridley Scott directed it well, and visually, it looks great. Uh, there are some interesting ideas in it. I mean, such as the idea of the colony ship. I also think David and Walter are by far the best thing in this movie, but then Michael Fassbender is always great. Um, but many of the human characters are unfortunately as dumb as rocks in this film, and they do suicidally stupid things. <laughs> if, if I'm honest, my favorite scene in Covenant was the early flashback scene between uh, David and Peter Whalen back on Earth, as that was the most Prometheus-like thing in it. Well, I mean, that and Guy Pearce and Michael Fassbender play off each other really well every time we see them together, even a small scene like that. I think we just saw this film differently, Steve. Uh, I just don't have the issues with it that you do. Uh, but that's quite all right. You know, we can offer different points of view this way. Uh, so mm -hmm. let's talk about the story a little bit. Um, you can imagine going on a colonizing ship uh, to a planet far off into, into space. Uh, that could really be scary. But one thing that is sure to make it easier is to have your wife or husband with you. It allows for, for some continuity in your life, even in a strange situation. Uh, you can also imagine how many conversations the married couple um, couples must have had about going to the new world and the life they would have there. They didn't need to do a whole bunch of buildup for you to feel for Danielle uh, when her husband uh, burned up in the cryotube and she was suddenly alone. But then to find out it had all basically been for him and now she's out of her depth and would also, uh, would also add much despair to what she was already feeling. That must have felt like quite the mountain to climb. Yeah, I think we'll have to agree to disagree on some aspects of this movie, but I will say to the movie's credit that the setup with Daniels was an interesting one. I think there was actually a deleted scene with Daniels and her husband, uh, who was played by James Franco, that established what their married life was like before he died. Uh, that scene adds quite a bit and shows what was lost with Franco's death and why he meant so much to Daniels. Anyway, it's probably uh, hard living on a colony ship surrounded by couples when you're in that situation. It's understandable why she later turns to Walter to help fill that void since he's the only other person on the ship who's as lone in, in the same way that she is. There was a deleted scene about that. You were correct there. And it did fill in the story quite a bit. Uh, I, I said it more generically because I imagined uh, couples, uh, all the couples uh, likely went through something similar. Uh, you know, something uh, occurred to me this time through the film. In Aliens from 1986, there was a terraforming colony on LV-426 that turned out to be a front for the scientific station they had hidden on the moon so that they could use the colonists as hosts and experiment on the 
the xenomorphs. I can't help but notice that the Covenant is the colonization vessel with the terraforming bay and equipment. I also think it's interesting where they end up going just happens to be where the root of the species of the xenomorphs come from. Uh, and honestly, I'm thinking that terraforming colonies might be suspect with the Wayland yutani Corporation. Uh, but then that brings up the question of just how far back does the company's knowledge of these creatures go? We know from, I want to say it was an Alien 3, that everything that happens on a company ship is automatically reported back to the company. Uh, so we know for certain that the company knew about what happened on Prometheus and the discovery of the engineers there on LV-223. All I'm saying is that it's possible they were hoping the Covenant would pick up something, and even if they all died, they would have more data on the black liquid and the creature it created. It's also possible that with David on the planet, the company could have known all, all that he did as well. Actually, the Phobos Creek uh, featurette uh, seems to suggest that Weyland Utani had foreknowledge of the alien before the mission of the Covenant had even taken off. I say this specifically because of the the fear test that they were they they showed uh, pictures uh, of clips of face huggers mixed in with other creatures. That's an interesting point, and I think it might help explain certain things. I don't know how much Weyland Utani would have known by that point about the xenomorphs. I mean, it's possible by then that they could have found the remains of the Prometheus and the logs that were left behind. So they might have been aware of the creatures, um, especially given what you're saying about the Phobos uh, element. Um, it might be possible that they could have extrapolated the flight path that Shaw and David took from there, since they probably had Shaw's final message from the end of Prometheus. It might be a bit of a reach that Wayland Yutani steered the Covenant to that planet, but it's absolutely not out of the realm of possibility. That's fair. I guess we can chalk it up to a maybe then. As you mentioned earlier, David seems to be absolutely obsessed with creation. When asked what he believed in David said creation, the first thing David tries to turn Walter onto is creating, and he celebrates it when Walter is able to create music. David's first complaint about humans is that they forbade synthetics to create. It is really no wonder that David actually went back to the engineer's homeworld, Planet 4, and unleashed what looked like thousands of those metal pods with the black liquid onto them. And I'm guessing that likely wiped out the engineers as a species, along with the rest of the fauna on the planet. That whole area David dropped those canisters on was littered with the corpses of thousands of engineers that were there when David landed. However, I would go as far to say that 10 years without any master to obey or scheduled maintenance drove David the android equivalent of mad, especially considering David was a prototype. Not all of the kinks had been worked out of him yet. He thinks he talks about having various emotions, feeling disappointment, things he is programmed to understand but not actually feel. His experience with his own creators and being with them, uh, humans, when they discovered their creators, the engineers, left him hellbent to destroy them both, as he is superior to them despite the third, despite being the third in that generational line. I think part of David's obsession with creation goes back to his need to prove himself superior to Wayland, because David is superior to Wayland in most respects except for one. Uh, androids cannot naturally procreate the way humans can, and so they cannot create in the same way. And of course, uh, there's a point you mentioned about humans uh, forbidding synthetics to create. So uh, David tries to get around all this through bioengineering and the creation of the neomorphs. I think David's obsession is him overcompensating from the limitations he was built and programmed with in an attempt to make himself fully superior to Wayland. Uh, having a long period of time without proper maintenance probably didn't help, but that was part his own fault for killing Shaw, who up to that point was maintaining David. Um, in any case, David went from a morally ambiguous character with darker elements to a full-on villain by that point. Oh, yeah. David is a card-carrying villain, and a particularly nasty one, too, by that point. I like how you said earlier that he becomes a bigger monster than the Xenomorphs eventually. In order to destroy both the humans and the engineers, David will go to any lengths and do anything, just as Holloway said that he would do to accomplish his goals in Prometheus. In the 10 years since David has been on his own, he has been releasing the black liquid he found in the metal containers on LV-223 and experimenting with it on Planet 4 to produce new life forms. His goal was simple. David sought to create the perfect organism that would wipe out mankind, and it would seem that he would find 
finally succeed by the time the Covenant shows up on Planet 4. We see two different types of xenomorphs in Covenant. We see the, see what is called a neomorph burst out of Ledward's back in the med bay. He is a lot of, he is a lot like the Deacon alien we saw at the end of Prometheus, only white. According to Ridley Scott, the neomorph is intended to be like the first generation alien. Later, we see him fully grown. He is still white, but he is fully bipedal and does have uh, those bones sticking out of his back like later xenomorph warriors but only two or three as i recall at this point though i must point out a flaw in the naming of these new aliens neo is a prefix that means new and different from something that existed in the past as aliens haven't existed yet i have to assume this is a reference to its previous black liquid form and the fungus uh, but then things get weird with the name of for the next type of alien but let me explain uh, after a facehugger attacks Captain Orm, what, what I can only assume is the second generation of aliens, called a protomorph, later bursts from his chest. Later we see the protomorph full-grown and now black-skinned uh, when it kills Cole. This full-grown protomorph looks a lot like the warrior xenomorphs we are used to seeing, albeit a bit more bipedal. The problem is that the proto is also a prefix, and it means first or foremost, the earliest form of. Wouldn't that be the neomorph? Or has the alien species actually uh, evolved into another species that is actually the beginning of the xenomorph line, like how the like how in evolution Homo sapiens marked the the beginning of modern modern humans? It's hard to say for sure. Um, maybe we might know if they ever do a follow up. Um, I'm not really sure what on the question either, but it is true that the naming convention is a bit weird. Still, I can buy David developing them as a way of putting an end to humanity. Of course, the uh, <laughs> Humans in this film do a great job of killing themselves off without his help. Uh, I have to point out that Captain Orem just sticks his head right next to the Xenomorph eggs just because David told him to. And then he predictably gets killed by a facehugger. It's dumb on a suicidal level. Why in the world would anybody do that? Especially given how suspiciously David has been acting the entire time. Why don't you just stick your head in a lion's mouth and see what happens? I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it it does seem very foolish on the surface um but my guess and this is just speculation is that Oren believes asimov's laws of robotics were in place and david should not be able to tell him that something was safe if it was not uh but it's just a theory um, we see the black liquid coming from a fungus that releases spores to impregnate the host. Now, I think those fungus or mushrooms were formed when David released the black liquid onto the planet itself when he arrived. When it got into the earth, the original plant fungus uh, formed. Uh, but that is just a theory. It's possible that Orem thought that David was limited by his programming, but given how long it was since he received proper maintenance, he should have been a little bit less trusted. <laughs> but it does make it a little more understandable. Um, your theory on the fungus could well be possible, too. I mean, we did see the fungus infect one of the Covenant crew the minute that he was exposed to the spores, which, again, goes back to really bad quarantine protocols. <laughs> they all go down there without even wearing spacesuits on the off chance the environment might be hazardous. I mean, even Dallas and his landing party had the good sense to do that much. <laughs> uh, the, the Covenant crew just goes down there completely exposed, and it gets people predictably killed. In any case, I do think the shrimps were definitely part of David's experiments in some way. And he probably was uh, farming the mushrooms for the black liquid at the very least. I can definitely see where that just being a dumbass stuff you mentioned fits in there. <laughs> I guess I was just able to blow it off. All in all, I, I love the Alien franchise. I, I feel like I've been watching it my whole life, so it holds a special place for me for sure. Uh, what's more is that the original Alien is my favorite sci-fi horror from film and aliens is my favorite sci-fi action film in the horror genre um so obviously those two are my favorites and probably the favorites of many others as well however i genuinely liked alien 3 and alien resurrection and i understand uh those are big are not big favorites among fans and when you compare them to the first two it's really no wonder why but in my opinion, you have to let each film in the franchise be an individual to enjoy them. I also really liked uh, the prequel series uh, a lot, too. Granted, I'm a big Ridley Scott fan, uh, but I liked these a lot. Not as much as the first two, uh, but I really enjoyed them. Uh, one thing in particular that I like about them is a lot is that they are designed to be watched multiple times. There are things you just don't pick up until the rewatch. You can see more of the story and the seeds that were planted along the way early on uh but what about you steve uh what are your thoughts on the alien franchise and and what are your favorites 
Well, nothing's going to top the original two films. I mean, those two movies are masterpieces in their respective genres, and they set the gold standard for what an Alien movie should be. That said, I think Alien Resurrection is enjoyable in a dumb, fun way, and uh, Alien vs. Predator was enjoyable on a simple action movie level. Um, I also really respect Prometheus for its ambition and its grand themes, and it's a movie I will occasionally go back to watch because what works in it is really compelling and fascinating. Um, but I'll pass on watching Alien 3 and Covenant again, which to me are the series' low points, unfortunately. Still, I think the uh, Alien universe is really interesting, and even some of the later films are worth watching, even if they're not as great as the original two films. Now, um, I also want to bring in uh, one other bit of Alien media that's worth discussing, and that's the video game Alien Isolation. Um, a lot of Alien games are missable, and you don't really get that much of note in them, but Isolation feels like it's an essential part of the franchise. Uh, this one was made by Creative Assembly, uh, which is best known for the Total War series and published by Sega, and it's currently on, available on PC, uh, PC, PS4, PS5, and Xbox. In Isolation, you play as Ripley's daughter, Amanda, who goes off to the space station, Sevastopol, to look for Ripley. Um, but what she finds there is that the station has been overtaken uh, by a xenomorph who is hunting for any surviving humans. Um, Alien Isolation is a survival horror um, where you're exploring the place and looking for a way out while hiding from the xenomorph. And there's also another really cool new threat, the Working Joes, who are maintenance synthetics who have gone berserk and will kill anyone on sight. The Working Joes are extremely creepy in their design as they're androids that don't have a human-looking exterior and they're just blank and faceless. So you as Amanda have to avoid them as well. But the game has the look and feel of the original game by Ridley Scott, of the original film by Ridley Scott. Uh, Amanda is a likable main character, and they got the flavor of Alien down perfectly. In fact, there's even some DLC add-ons where you can play as Ellen Ripley and play out the events of the first film on the Nostromo. Isolation is an awesome game, and I wish they'd followed up on it properly. That does sound like a pretty cool game. Uh, granted, you're you're more of a gamer than I am, but I would have definitely picked that up had I come across it for sure. Um, but that about wraps up our two-part Alien franchise discussion. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll see you next time. Uh, but before we go, I'd like to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've enjoyed hanging out with us on ORP today. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to please share this episode and help us get the word out. That is indeed a big help, and uh, we want to thank you in advance for your support of both listening and sharing this episode. Uh, it makes a lot to us, uh, and we'll see you in two weeks.